If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. This is one of my favorite churches. The church at Philadelphia. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13. Now again, they were faithful. Other of the churches were tolerant of sin, losing their first love, <laughs> compromising with sin, dead, and Sardis, and yet this one could be considered the faithful church. Before I read the passage, let me just make you remember this as it were. A church's vision shouldn't be determined by the size of its congregation or the limitation of its location, the size of its buildings, or the restriction of its budget. Those things should not hamper the vision of a church. Instead, churches should set their vision based on the power of their God. Let's face it, our God is infinite. Our God is magnificent. He is awesome. He is powerful. He is holy. He is sovereign. Beyond description or comprehension. I mean, we talk about God and we are just getting just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. Just a blink of His greatness. We must believe that when He chooses to open opportunities, the possibilities are endless. All we need to do is trust and believe in Him and follow His lead. And that's where it becomes very difficult. God opens up a door and there's a tendency, if it's too big, (laughs) to step back. By the way, that happens in your individual life. That happens as a family. That can happen as a church. But when God opens, are we willing to go through that door? Now again, sometimes God opens... Sometimes God closes doors. By the way, sometimes He closes and we keep pounding. (laughs) But again, we have to trust in His sovereignty and His infinite wisdom. We've got to go through the open doors. Go through the open doors with faith. And again, this message, this passage has really convicted me personally. Am I willing to walk through the door when it's obvious? Am I willing to be stretched? Am I willing to walk in, as some would say, uncomfortable grace? God gives you an opportunity, whether it's evangelism, a service, or ministry, or using your gifts, or whatever it might be. Spiritual growth, uncomfortable grace, something that makes you uncomfortable. And are you willing to walk through that door and say, Lord, by your strength and through your wisdom and by your spirit, I will seek to continue to walk down that path by faith. Again, that's the church at Philadelphia. They were a faithful church. And they they were seeing God work through that church. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commands to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and on the the name of the city of my God in the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, underline 
that little S churches. This letter is not just to be written or read to the Philadelphian church. It's to be read to all churches. We, we are all to learn from the word that we are going to speak today. Well, again, we're going to divide this up as we have been with uh, seven C's. And because each one of these letters breaks down the same exact way, within reason, they all uh, have the same general format. The first is the commission, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now again, this church was probably founded um, uh, with Paul's ministry, as the last four had been founded uh, during Paul's ministry. He was at Ephesus for a certain amount of time, but then branched out probably to these churches. You can find that in Acts 19. Because in Acts 19, verse 10, it says this, uh, He continued for two years, that's Paul, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So, again, do you have that uh, video, that, uh, that PowerPoint? Um, and again, we've seen this a number of times. Um, this is Mediterranean, Israel is over here. And that's the only reason I put this part up. Uh, a GNC, and again, this is the Mediterranean uh, Paul was here at Ephesus, but out from their branch, he branched out, and these are all sister churches, as it were. So again, Ephesus and Smyrna, and we've been just working our way uh, along the postal route, really. And right here is Philadelphia, so just a few miles from Sardis uh, to the east. I think it's about 30 miles. Um, this was, again, uh, started by Paul, most likely, uh, little known is of uh, little known of the little is known of this church. Uh, history really doesn't say much about it. Uh, we do know from tradition that the church stood firm even after the regions around it became um, uh, conquered by the Muslims, <laughs> and they actually remained a church until the 14th century, so a long time. Whereas some of the other churches capitulated uh, and overrun by the Muslims. Uh, they didn't succumb until the mid-14th century. And in one sense, they were like a thorn, or excuse me, a rose between two thorns. You know, the dead church and the useless church of Laodicea and Sardis, but here's Philadelphia, so like a, a rose between two thorns. Uh, which also says something about geography, and you know, even though you're in an area, it doesn't mean that your church is either good or bad. Right? They're just a few miles away. But again, they are commended where the other ones are condemned. Now as far as the city, the second C, the city, um, again, like I said, Philadelphia is about 30 miles southeast of Sardis. Actually today, the, it's no longer called Philadelphia, it's Alicia, Alicia, her, Alicia. It was at this time the, the youngest of the seven cities. It had been established in 189 B.C. So at the point of writing, it was, it was just about, uh, what, 280 years old. So it was a young city. Isn't that interesting how we look at I mean, our nation, you know, is only a, a few hundred years old. A couple, well, what is it, 200 and how many? How many out here? 200 and, right, not even 300 years old. Not even 300 years old. And I'm saying this is a young city at shy of 300. Their whole perspective. That's one thing. If you ever go to the Middle East, your whole perspective of uh, uh, things lasting. They, don't make, they do not make buildings out of wood. And very rarely even block. It's all stone. Yeah, I know, boo. But if they had a secondary material, it would be block. No, they, they make a lot of stuff out of block. <clears throat> but anyways, the city was uh, new. Now, they, it got its name because the king, one of the kings from Pergama, his name was Eumenius, uh, had a brother, Attilus, and they loved each other with a brotherly love. They're brothers, true brothers, true fleshly brothers. And he, was, he loved his brother so much that when he established this city, he called it Philadelphia, brotherly love, or love of my brother. I mean, that's what he was getting at. So that's really where the name came from, his love for his brother Attilus. Uh, culturally, uh, this was not one of the main culture centers 
of this area. It had a 800-foot hill, which meant it, it was easily defended, but that was not the purpose of the city. It actually was a missionary outreach. Now, when I say missionary, I'm talking about Hellenism. Now, Hellenism is where Greek culture and language was, it was a point of missionary emphasis of Greek and uh, Greek language and Greek culture to spread throughout that area. Because that was one of the last, uh, it was called the gateway to the east. You know what you find with these cities? A lot of them are named after the same things. Like, I think it was, Thyatira was the gateway to the east too. Uh, but anyways, Philadelphia, gateway to the east. And from there, Hellenism, the Greek culture and the Greek language spread out because there was a main route, trade route, that went right through Philadelphia. Now that's going to be important because that's one of the characteristics of the church. They were a missionary church. They didn't get out the, the Greek culture. They got out the gospel. But it's interesting how the city itself, uh, uh, exempl- or the church exemplified what the city uh, was known for. In fact, it was so successful that the Ladean language was replaced by Greek. That's how, that's how forceful they were of getting the language and the Greek culture out. The whole area was the Ladean uh, kingdom with the Ladean language, and it was replaced with Greek, Greek speaking. Uh, one last thing is they had a major earthquake which shook that entire area, AD 19. The city was pretty much flattened, from what I gather. And because, uh, because the Caesar at the time was Tiberius, what Tiberius said was, you, you don't have to pay your taxes to Rome for a certain amount of time, and you can rebuild your city with those, that tax money. You know, he was gracious and not... And so they, uh, because he, they were able to keep the taxes and build their city back up, they did a monument, and there was a temple... I believe it was a temple uh, for Caesar Tiberius uh, right there at Philadelphia. Not only that, but you see one other thing in the city. There was a stronghold of Jews. And you see this in verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. You see the same thing with the Smyrna church in chapter 2, verse uh, yeah, verse 9. The synagogue of Satan. Now what that is, is the synagogue, that's Jewish, Satan, not, they weren't Satan worshipers. It would be Old Testament Jews who were, who were uh, attacking and uh, defending Judaism and trying to destroy and persecute the true church. So again, that synagogue of Satan would be uh, Jews who were not willing to receive their Savior. And so that was apparently one of the strong religious points. They didn't have other, like, you know, like some of the other cities, we saw all these other gods and they had acropolises and, and temples and uh, other than perhaps the, the one to the Caesar, uh, that was not what they were known for. It was uh, basically um, a trade route, uh, a missionary outpost for uh, Hellenism um, and gateway to the east, that type of thing. But again, a very important part of the postal route, part of the main route, you know, that went around to those seven, seven cities. Well, let's look at the third thing, the correspondent, or this is Christ, starting in the second part of verse 7. These, say, these things says he. Now, what's interesting about these last two churches, this one, Philadelphia and Laodicea, the references are not from what we had already talked about in chapter 1. In other words, the first five churches we looked at kept referring back to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, the vision of Christ? And John pulled the images out of chapter 1 and used them for the first five chapters, or first five churches. This one, he goes strictly to the Old Testament. And he says four different things about Christ. Christ has him... um, you know, um, write down. First of all, he is he who is holy. Let me say this first. And let me say this also. You know what I'm really realizing? If you do not study the book of Revelation, you do not have a complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, vision of Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, the Lord of the church. Chapter 4, Christ in heaven. Chapter 5, Christ in heaven. Or the Father in heaven, chapter 4. Chapter 5, Christ in heaven. And then he opens up the seals. You get a really, really complete picture of our Lord Jesus Christ through the book of Revelation. If you shy away from the book, 
Oh, it's prophetic? It's not all about prophetic. The primary is about him. The, the bottom line of the book, you know what the bottom line of the book of Revelation is? You will face Jesus Christ. Right? So when you hear one of your workers say, blankety blank, using Christ's name in vain, that should not only, mm, but you know what? You should have this thought go through your mind. You will face Jesus Christ. In all His glory. You either face Him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, which makes Him your brother, right? Bring you right into the family. Or you will face Him as He will be your judge and the one who condemns, right? So, by the way, you will, right? Have you received Christ as your Savior? Because you will face Christ. Every knee will bow. I mean, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 is a summary of everything that Revelation says. He is coming back. He will judge, he will judge the world. He will judge the believers and reward them. And He will judge the unbelievers and cast them alive in the lake of fire. He, you will stand before Jesus Christ. Nobody that has ever lived, starting with Adam, will be able to exit that interview, as it were. I mean, you will stand before Christ. I, I, but for us who are believers in Christ, isn't that, a, isn't that a glorious thought? We are on the winning team. We are walking with the, the one who is the conqueror, the, vic, the, the, victory, the victor. Well, let's look at his uh, character. First of all, uh, he's holy in character. He who is holy. God alone possesses absolute uh, holiness. Absolute holiness. Utterly separate from sin. That's what he's getting at when he says he who is holy. His character is absolutely unblemished, absolutely flawless, perfect. I mean, how else can I say it? By the way, the word holy, actually, in, the, in, the, in one sense, it doesn't have an ethic, ethic, ethical uh, flavor to it. Primarily, it means separate. When he says he is holy, he means he is separate. It was actually used, now this sounds really, really odd, but uh, S. Lewis Johnson uh, made the comment that that word holy was used in other Greek language for temple prostitutes. And you say, how does that work? Obviously they weren't pure, they weren't sinless. No, but they were se separated for their work, in, because the, the uh, temples were very immoral. They actually had temple prostitutes, okay? They were separated for that purpose. Do you see the point? Separate. Now, I know that sounds really odd, but, but that, may, that means something here. Because when Isaiah says this of the Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. He is thrice, that's the only characteristic, that's the only attribute of God that is thrice mentioned. You know, you don't see love, 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 or uh, righteous, righteous, righteous. But you do see when it comes to God in a number of passages, including Revelation, holy, holy, holy. What do you mean? That means this, that our God is completely separate from us. He is completely different. He is, if you want to write this down, the other. He's the other. We are here and he is the other. Now, for the purpose of God, it is an ethical. It's not only that he's the other, but he is pure, he is sinless, he is flawless, total perfection. He's the other. But that's the first thing that Christ wants uh, his church to remember. I'm the other. He who is holy. The holy one of God, like Mark 124 says. Number two, he's not only holy, but he's also true. He's genuine. In fact, that word holy and that word true is often found in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 6, verse 10, 15, verse 3. You'll see it like four or five times. Where it, it doesn't just say that he's holy, but it's holy and true. And that's what he says here. He is holy. He is true. What do you mean true? True in the sense of genuine. He's authentic. He's the real thing, as it were. He's the true Messiah. Opposite of fictitious. All the religions of the world are fictitious. Do you, do you realize that? All the other religions are fictitious. There's no Allah. There's no Buddha. Not really. I don't make them in your mind, but they're not real. Not true. 
And as far as the 300 million Hindu gods, they're all false. No, it's not true that the true god looks like an elephant. Okay, that's, you know, much of... When we were over at uh, India and uh, with uh, Shabu, <coughs> they had just gotten done with some of their, their um, ceremonies. They had these uh, festivals, festivals, and they would literally bring in the elephants and, elephants and worship because that was, their, that was the, uh, the image of their god. No, no. Do you see what he's doing here? I am holy, the other, perfect, but also true, the genuine one, the true one. So in the midst of the world that is full of error and falsehood and perversions and counterfeits, our Lord Jesus is the only true one, the true God. That's why in John 14, he says, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? Through him, through him. All else is false. All else is counterfeit. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There, 1 John 5.20 says it three times. True, true, true. we gotta, we got to defend that. Please, I trust that you don't think this way. Well, you know, I'm following Jesus because I know he's the way, but there might be some other. No, no, there is no other. He's the only way. Exclusive. And by the way, when you tell certain people that, they might get really angry with you because you have just condemned their gods. And you have just said this, and you, are, you will face Christ someday. About the third one. Not only is holy true, but he's also authoritative. He who has the key of David. Okay? The key of David. Now, a key represents authority. And whoever holds the key has control. So this represents authority and control. This word key. I mean, if I, I don't have a key with me. But if I gave you the key and I said, okay, uh, go ahead and use it. That means you have the authority and are able to control the fact that when you want to drive my car. Right? By the way, Amber, I'm not going to give you my key right now. Okay? you got to get your... <laughs> She was like looking at me like, really? No, not you. I was looking at Billy. <laughs> so authority and control. And again, all, what did Jesus tell his disciples? Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Christ by the Father. That's messianic authority. By the way, because he says the key of David, that's messianic authority. Um, He's, he's really referring to the Davidic promises, the fact that he would sit on David's throne. He's got the authority. The same word is used uh, in the Septuagint in the Old Testament for uh, a steward of the king. His name was Eliakim. But the point was is this. Eliakim had the key to the, the treasury house for King Hezekiah which meant that he could go in and unlock the door and deal with the finances however he saw fit. That's the point. He had authority and control to do that. You see, this is, I think it's First Kings. But the point is, that's what a key does. It gives you authority. It gives you control. And Jesus said, I'm not only holy and true, I am authoritative. I have all authority. And we already saw that. If you just turn real quickly into Revelation 1.18... He's already told us he had a different type of key. I mean, again, I'm not talking a gold key. I'm just talking the authority. Look what it says. Uh, verse 18, And I have the keys of Hades and death. So again, he, he is the authoritative one. Hades and death, and here it's, it's of salvation and blessing and to sit on uh, David's throne, and there's so many other things that we could say. But the point is, is that he has authority and he has control. And then finally, number four, he opens and no one shuts because he has the key. He's the other. He's the only true God. He has the authority and control. Therefore, he opens, no one shuts. He shuts, no one opens. It's all about him. It's final. When, when he does something, it's final. What he has determined and planned cannot be overturned by another. What he has determined and planned cannot be overturned by President Obama. Joe Biden. 
Governor Cuomo. Uh, who's the king? Uh, who's the uh, the guy in Iran now? Right now, who's the head guy? He'll be someone will replace him later, but it doesn't matter then. <laughs> you get the point. I'm not trying to make light of this, but you know what? It, that's that's what that's saying. That's what that verse is saying. I mean, that's what this passage is saying. He is the king. And he's got the key, and what he plans, it will, uh, it will be accomplished. There's not like, you know, I wonder if, you know, it's going to really end. This, and what I want to keep showing, this is so important. Revelation says this, this world will not dribble down to an end. It is, it is right on course. It is planned by God from eternity past, and it will end when God wants it to end. Right? And there will never be a day when there is no Jew left on this earth. I always think of, you know, when, now again, I'm not saying that they might not be hit with a bomb and there might be thousands and thousands dead. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, in the end, the Jew is still standing because God's name is on it, right? God has determined that there would be an Israel nation at the end that would be saved, an ethnic nation that would enter the millennium. So, no matter how people... Satan has his plan, God has his, and I always think of those who are on, on Satan's plan like this. Because I always thought of this with my own children when they went up against dad and mom's rule. I always like think of a block wall, a really good block wall from Southern Tier, and, <laughs> and the kid going like this. I don't agree with you, dad. Wham! And I'm going to break this wall down. Wham! Now you say, that's really odd. No, what I'm trying to say is God's plan is as solid as not even a, let's say a a mammoth rock. It's not going to move. It's not going to move. God's plan will be accomplished. That's why in Isaiah 43 it says this, Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. There's no one that can deliver out of my hand. If I have it, there's nobody that's going to deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Answer, no one. Okay, so, or in Daniel 4, 35, if you just want another verse, no one can restrain his hand. So every living person will have to deal with the king of this universe, which is Christ. Number four, the commendation. Now this turns to the church. I know your works. I know your works. And that's the same exact phrase that he's been using for the last five churches. I know your works. It's Odio, it means I, I know precisely where you are. Now, now, this is interesting. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Now, this is an open door. He just said he opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens. But he says, here, I've given you an open door. Now, we learn a little bit more about this church with these three little phrases. Uh, first of all, they had a little power, for you have a little strength. A little strength. The word little means, is the word micros. We get micro, micro. But the word strength is dunamis. We get the word dynamite. They have a little strength, a little power. And we're not really sh- exactly sure what he's referring to, but actually most commentators say this. This is not a super church. Uh, you would have seen a bigger church in Ephesus. You would have probably seen a bigger church. Um, well, probably not Smyrna, probably like Thyatira. This is probably a small church, small in number, uh, small in ability, small perhaps in finances. This wasn't a major hub. This was a, the route came through here, and yes, they were, uh, you know, uh, giving out the Greek uh, language and the Greek culture, but this was not a main hub. And probably what he's referring to is they were just little. I mean, just little as the church. I, and by the way, you say little, what does little mean? Well, it's everything's in comparison. When I went to Bible college, I went to Thomas Rowe Baptist Church. Thomas Rowe Baptist Church. Yay, did I hear yay? Um, yeah, I loved, uh, at that time, um, Jerry Falwell was the pastor. And uh, I've told you before, I always timed it, so I got in a little late. Because by the time I got there, it was like 20 minutes late, 25 minutes. They've already, they already had their first two offerings. I was kind of trying to walk in at the third offering. Sometimes they had like three offerings. Uh, you know, this project, that project. Now we have to give to the general fund. Um, but the point was, is that was five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. It actually turned out we, after the first, what, six months, we left and went to a smaller church. 
because I needed to connect, and it was hard to connect with that many people, you know. So what is a big church? I don't know. Big church is thousands. Small church might be hundreds. Big church might be hundreds. Small church might be, you know, less than 100. They say the average church in America is less than 100. Um, so, but little strength. See, they weren't a super church, but let me tell you this. They were obedient, and they were faithful, and they were making an impact. I want you to get that. This is the one church. I'm going to say it again. I'll say it again later on in the message. This, is the one, this, is, this church and the church in Smyrna were the only two churches that got no uh, condemnation. Nothing negative said about them. Nothing was said about the Smyrna church. They were the suffering church. Nothing is said negative about this church. They're the faithful church. It's not about size. It's not about being, you know, your impressiveness, your resources or your riches. And I say that about a church because I also say that about you as an individual. Sometimes as an individual we get this idea. Well, if I was so-and-so or if I had those gifts or if I had that amount of money, then I'd really be able to be used by God. That's, that's fleshly. We are supposed to walk by faith. And God is powerful. And the same God that inhabits your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, inhabits Charlie's life, inhabits Lee's life, and Sola's, and Benny's, and, and it's his power, right? It's not about our power. In fact, God uses the average and the poor, and many times even the lower, more mightily than those who have a lot of prestige. If you, if you just write this down, 1 Corinthians one twenty six, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, and not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? 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 Why does he choose the, the weak and the base that no flesh should glory in his presence? He said the same thing. In Jeremiah 9.23, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, what? That he understands and knows me. If you're going to glory, just glory in the fact that you know God, right? Saving relationship through Christ. So again, as I read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. I think what's this is this. See, you had all these other magnificent churches and places. I mean, they were, you know, hubs. And this area was a, the, one of the newest areas. wasn't real wealthy that we know of. They had just gone through a major earthquake just a, a few decades earlier. 17, this is about 95 AD. 17, 19 AD, AD was when the earthquake hit. And yet this was an established church, faithful church, obedient church, maybe small, maybe didn't have the resources, but they were faithful. They were walking with Jesus, and the power of the Spirit was working through them. And just like Acts 1.8 says, uh, you should receive, what, power when the Spirit of God comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses. And they were. They were. So again, little power, His grace was magnificently through, seen through them. I, I think of uh, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit. By my spirit, says the Lord. So they're little. Not only that, they were obedient. They, you've kept my word. Again, I believe uh, the word there is, is in the open door that he's referring to is the opportunity of witness and service. I believe that's what he's getting at. I've opened the door for you to serve, for you to witness, for you to be all that you ought to be, lights in this dark world, and you have gone through that door. So they've been obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And they had. They had. It was the word of God that drove them. I, I, I like what Martin Luther said. Uh, you remember the trial? And he was at the, uh, the trial there, and one of his famous statements is this, Martin Luther. Now again, this goes back 500 years. He's, with, he's in front of all these Roman bishops, all these hierarchy. 
and he's asked to recant some things, basically justification by faith. And he's standing there and he says this, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I can do no other. I know what God says and I have to do it. So they were just like that. They were an obedient church. And finally, they had remained loyal. And you have not denied my name. As Matthew 28 says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They knew he was with them. And they had not denied their na- uh, his name. And I'm sure part of that is verse 9, the synagogue of Satan. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the picture is this. There's this little church. They are seeking to follow Jesus. They are seeking to be faithful to Jesus. And even you have the synagogue of Satan, these Jews who are constantly trying to um, hurt the ministry. Maybe even hurt them, but you don't hear about the persecution. But destroy the ministry, the synagogue of Satan, those Jews that try to deny Christ and keep to the Old Testament law. And yet they continue down. And because of that, I want you, I want you to have uh, three different promises that we see. Actually, there's seven total in this. I mean, this is what's amazing. If you're faithful to Jesus, he is, then he doesn't have to reprimand you. He can just keep blessing. And that's what you see in this book, this, this church. They're a faithful church. They're walking with Jesus, keeping his word, not denying him. And he just keeps blessing them. He, like seven different promises. The first one is this. Again, a door of opportunity. I know your work. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. And you say, well, what is that open door? Probably evangelism, service, ministry. In other words, effectiveness, opportunity. They were given opportunity, and they, he opened the door, and they went through. You see this. Uh, I don't have time to read them all, but like in Acts 14. Paul, talking to the church at Antioch, and he said this, and that he had, that's Christ, opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. See, there's that opportunity. Open door to the Gentiles. You see it in Colossians 4, verse 2. Uh, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us. Paul's asking the Colossian Christian, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word. That's evangelism. And that's not only just evangelism, that's, that's also ministry. God, open a door, open, a, open up the hearts of the people at Alfred Almond to receive the word. Lord, when I go to work and I'm talking to my, my co-worker, open up his heart. Give me an opportunity to share. One, let me ask you, one, do you even care? <laughs> or have you gotten hard into the fact that people are going to hell? And number two, do you even pray for that? Lord, give me an opportunity. You know, it's been a long time since I prayed for anybody about salvation. And number three, if he gives you the open door, will you go through it? See, some people are hardened. Some people never pray. But other people, they see the door, but they still won't go through it. And actually, then they're getting hardened in their own heart. God wants to stretch us. God wants us to live with and in uncomfortable grace. I think sometimes we think this. You know, as I grow as a Christian, it becomes more comfortable. No, it doesn't. If you're, if, if you're doing that, you're treading water. God wants to stretch you to the day you're put in the casket. I mean, some of you are going to end up in the nursing home. You can still be effective there, right? Some of you are just about ready to retire. What are you going to do with that time? Well, this is my time. This is me time. And you just wasted your life. Because you stand before Jesus, Right? No, 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 no. We are all being stretched and all continually. And here the first promise is, I'm going to open up a door for you and no one's going to shut it. But that doesn't mean you're going to walk through it. Number two, vindication. Second, uh, for, uh, verse nine. I'll make those uh, of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. By the way, they're not worshiping them. But they're going to be worshiping where they're worshiping. And make them know that I have loved you. Now again, uh, just write down Romans 2.28. There Paul says, not everyone who says they're a Jew is a, a, a true Jew. In other words, there's a Jew that is outward, but the true Jew, the true Jew is the one that has received the faith through Abraham, as it were. Or Abraham's true children. In other words, true believers in Jesus Christ. Those who are Jews that are true believers in Jesus Christ, they're the true Jew. 
But what is he saying? What does he mean? I think what he's getting at, I will come make them come and worship before your feet. I think what he's referring to there is, I'm going to even snatch some of those and they're going to be part of the worship that, you know, when you're worshiping, they're going to be right with you worshiping the true God. In other words, I think he's saying that even the toughest group that there is in that town, and that is the synagogue of Satan. I mean, let's face it. You take a Jew that is convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah, that's a tough nut to crack, right? I mean, let's think of Paul, right? Persecuting, wanting to even kill. That's the, the rabidness of their faith. I think here, when he says they're going to worship, well, you see the worship in Revelation 4 and 5, all of them stand before the throne, worshiping the, the Father, worshiping the Son. I think he's saying, listen, even the toughest nut can be cracked by the grace of God. And I think for us, we have to remember that. I don't know who your tough nut is, okay? It might be your brother or sister or father or mother or some aunt or uncle. Someone out there, you know, well, they'll never get saved. In fact, I've stopped praying for them. In fact, every time I talk to them, they irritate me. You know. <laughs> Whoa, wait a second. Vindication. Is, God, is our God truly strong? I don't think we think that. I know it. I, I confess that. I confess it this week. Wait, am I walking through the doors? Am I really walking by faith? Am I living in un, uncomfortable grace? So vindication. This also could be at the very end. Those who would not receive, we will be with Christ, I believe, at the Bema, or excuse me, at the great white throne. Excuse me, not the Bema, the great white throne. And those who never receive Christ and they get judged, uh, I believe, will be there. Number three, the next promise protection from the severest of trials. Now, look at verse 10. This is a question mark because you have kept my command to persevere. Okay, so they're faithful. They're walking with Jesus. They're actually showing the fruit of salvation. I will keep you from the hour of trial. That's a limited amount of time, by the way, because it says an hour of trial. Not a literal hour, but limited time. Which shall come on the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What could that be? I believe that's the rapture. That is, I believe, the rapture right there. Keep you. Because the word doesn't mean keep you through, it means keep you from. In other words, the idea is, I'm going to take you out. That literally is what it's referring to. Keep you from. Now sometimes we do go through trials, but here it's keep you from. Because it says the whole world. Some would say, well that's 70 AD. Well that, wasn't, that was just a very small, that was just Jerusalem that got destroyed 70 AD by Titus. No, the whole world. In other words, he's giving a promise to Christians, not just the Philadelphia church. He's saying, see, because a lot of these promises won't even happen until the end. And when he says the pillar and all that, that's not till the end. But the point is, is when, when Christ, see, this is one of the things you see in Scripture. When God speaks many times of future things, he speaks as, it already, as though it already happened. Because when God speaks a promise, it's as good as though it already did happen. Right? That's why when he says, you know, those who he justified, he, um, he glorified. What do you mean glorified? Yeah, I mean, I'm not glorified yet. Well, he speaks it in such a way that, you know what, if it's God speaking, even if it's future, it's as good as done. That, that's how many times how he approaches. And so he says, you know, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you out of it. I'm going to keep you from this. And I'm going to leave that right there. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because after we get done with the next church, we're going to spend a whole lesson, a whole message on the rapture. Because I believe between chapters 3 and chapter 4, in that white space is where the rapture really happens. Now you can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. The reality is that's where the rapture happens. You, you might say, I don't even know what you're talking about. What do you mean rapture? It's the snatching up of the church of Jesus Christ that is on this earth and those who have died in Christ. The snatching up before the tribulation happens. That's the trial. That's the testing of the whole world. So we're going to leave that for the moment just because we're out of time. Three more very quickly. Then we come to the confrontation. None. <laughs> no confrontation. No condemnation. They're faithful. 
By the way, I said faithful, not perfect. Faithful. They were walking with Jesus. They were walking according to the Spirit of God. When they were convicted with sin, they repented. They're faithful. And and we see this two times now. We saw it with the church of Smyrna, the suffering church. We see it here with the faithful church. No condemnation. Nothing that the Lord said, oh, and by the way, I have this against you. I'm coming to fight against you. We saw that in another church. I'm going to come. No, no. He said, I'm going to protect you. You're faithful. Number six, the counsel. But you just say this, hold fast, that's an imperative, that's a command. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. You might say, what do you mean crown? I believe he's talking about reward. He doesn't say the crown of life here, he just says crown. And that crown there, there's two different crowns in New Testament. One is a crown that you would see on a king. The next one is a crown that you saw was given to a runner. You know, like the Isthmus Games or the Olympian Games or the Corinth Games. You know, these guys would be running. I think it was pretty much guys. And then at the end, because they, you know, completed the two miles, they were given a crown, a Stephos. Stephnos, I guess it's called. You know, it was just a laurel. It was just, and it, you know, it was just temporary. But that's the crown he was talking about there. Because that was the reward for completing the race. So... He says, you know what, hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. I would say that very, very strongly to you. Make sure you're running this race well, because you can lose reward on this earth. You can lose reward by not running a good race. If you want to write down a a passage, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is what Paul says. He says he's running... Verse 24, do you not know that, don't you know this? Like in our vernacular, you could call it like this, duh. I mean, like, isn't this obvious? Like, you knew this. I already taught you this because he was in Corinth. Do you not know that those who run, run, run in a race, all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may attain it. Run this Christian life that you're going to win. Well, I thought I was saved. No, no. The reward part of it. If you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're part of the family. That doesn't mean that you're going to get great reward. Run in a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. That's self-control in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Who are you talking about? They. You know, the runners that you see at the Isthmus Games. You know, but they're only getting an imperishable or perishable crown. But we, an imperishable Therefore, I run. Now Paul just looks at himself and he says, listen, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Yeah, I know I'm the apostle. I'm running. Not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, the flesh, and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. As we were talking downstairs in ABF, I'm all in. All in. Because I'm running this race knowing that there's a prize to be had. Are you all in? I'm not saying are you a Christian. If you've received Christ, you're a Christian. I'm saying are you running the race to win? Or as I gave this illustration, can you lose reward? Yes. I'm not saying you lose completely. Thankfully, he's sovereign. He knows. But think of, and I gave this illustration. I'll give it here. I've been here almost 30 years. I have a name, whether it's good or bad, but I have a name. But what if in six months from now you found out that I cheated on my wife, had to leave the ministry, and hurt all the people that I have fo- uh, that followed me all these years, including my own family? Would I lose? I would lose tremendously. And my name would be mud, and Satan would be so happy. That's why we pray for each other. That's why we encourage each other. I'm not saying we're not perfect. I mean, we're never going to be perfect. Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you, some of you have done that and God has graciously reestablished you. And I say, praise God. But I'll tell you this. You don't go towards that type of life, right? You don't go towards failure. You run, you run the race well because you want to finish well, right? Finally, the challenge. Now, this is a challenge. He who overcomes, that's another na- way of saying he who is truly a Christian. He who is a, perseveres. What? Four things. Four more promises. These are the four promises. 
First of all, workmanship. They will be secure for eternity. I will make. Notice the I will. I will. I will. I will. He says it three times. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Eh, pillar is probably stable. You know, when you found a pillar in the temple, it was stable. By the way, a lot of times the pillars were ornate. Therefore, they were a source of honor. Boy, look at that temple. Look at those pillars. God himself will establish us. God himself will reward. Pillar in the temple of my God. Number two, ownership. They belong to God forever. And I will write on him the name of my God. That's branded. You know how the, uh, the Antichrist had 666 branded? True believers, the name of God will be on us. And look at this one. Not only ownership, but citizenship. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So it's going to be not only the name of God, but the name of the city. That's citizenship. We belong to new Jerusalem means heaven. And then finally, relationship. And the third I will. I will write on him my new name. So not only God's name, but Christ's name. And apparently, one commentary, I think this is correct. He says, that name, which no other knows... Revelation says no other man knows. It's like a name that will be a summation. This is how he said it. A summation of all of Christ's names throughout Scripture. I thought maybe that's what it is. Whatever it is, it's that particular name that specifies him alone and we will have it written out because we are in relationship and intimacy with him. Boy, is it worth running the race well? Oh, we so often want to live for our little kingdom that's going to be just for a moment. And yet Christ sets out to this church right here and he says, listen, run well so that no one steals your crown. No one, so that you will get the full reward. And keep running because look at all the blessings. Workmanship, ownership, citizenship, relationship. You'd have to be a fool if you really believe that, not to say, you know what, I'm all in. I am all in. I want to walk with the Lord. I want to worship the Lord. I want to obey the Lord. I want to love the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I want to evangelize for the Lord. Because he's my Lord. He is my Lord. Let's stand as we worship him.